The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So this morning we're going to dive into our first Peter series. Now when you see this word, what is your initial reaction? Don't say it out loud. Just think it. And I'm sure, listen, this is going to be a fun morning. We have an interesting text to go through today. And I'm sure whenever we hear this, this word government, we, we roll our eyes. We think many, many negative thoughts sometimes. I love this statement by Mark Dever, who's a pastor in D.C., and he has a church a few steps from the Capitol. He says this, almost any government is better than no government. That quote will mess with your mind, I think. Now, we can all think of, of exceptions, but that's why he says almost. If there is no government, someone's going to fill it, and usually it doesn't lead to good things. So we've been looking at the book of 1 Peter, and Peter is writing to those that are having to navigate some very difficult things as they, they navigate how to live in the culture God's called them to live in, and it's a culture that's hostile to their faith. We've been talking about what it means to live as resident aliens, that is someone who lives here but they're not from here. And it's a challenge for us to think about what does it mean for me as a Christian to live as a resident alien in the place in which God's called me to live in. So the first couple of verses are going to help us answer this question. How should we live as resident aliens concerning government? Looking at verses 13 through 15 of chapter 2. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So diving into this text should prove to everyone that we do not skip over difficult passages in the Bible. Now, what does it mean to be subject? Well, it means to be obedient. That's the general, the big idea. It means that we, a Christian should obey laws and pay their taxes. And I would imagine that, that most of you, when you leave today, you'll drive on the right side of the road. Most of you will stop at stop signs and stoplights. Most of you will even pay for your lunch at a restaurant. There are just certain things we live under and we recognize that as a Christian or as a citizen, I need to submit myself to certain laws that govern our behavior in the place in which we live. So does this, does this mean that we have to agree with everything? No. Does it mean we've got to obey government if they command us to sin? No, it does not. There are examples of people in the Bible all over the scriptures of disobeying government so they can obey God. Exodus 1 is an example of the Hebrew midwives disobeying Pharaoh's command to kill all the Hebrew male children when they're born. It says that they they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Over in Daniel chapter 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar, and they wouldn't bow down to his idols, and they were thrown into a fiery furnace as a result. We also see in Daniel 6, where Daniel kept his habit of praying three times a day publicly, and he's thrown into the lion's den for that. So we are to submit to governing authorities unless they forbid us from doing what God commands or if they command us to do what God forbids. Now, there are some Christians that believe 
Because God has ultimate authority, there is no other authority. And that's just simply not the case. God has set up these these human institutions as part of his common grace. And one of the hardest things to wrap our minds around is that God has set up this institution, these institutions, as part of his common grace, as a gift to humanity, but we still know that the institutions and the people are flawed. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that sometimes. You might say like this, God is our ultimate authority, but he's not our only authority. God is ultimately in charge. He is sovereign. He is the authority over everything and everyone, but he's not our only authority. And of course, there are people in power that sin. There are people that abuse power. Of course there are. There are unjust governments. But God has established the idea of government. And if he didn't, there'd be chaos and anarchy. So how do we know that God established what? Over in Romans chapter 13, Paul has some very similar words in this chapter to what Peter is saying in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So again, the, the general idea is that Christians obey laws. Again, we don't obey when following law means disobeying God, but Paul says that God has established human authority for the common good. And I know this is so hard for us to read, especially in today's political climate and atmosphere. And you might say, well, if, if Paul or Peter knew how bad it is today, well, maybe he wouldn't have said it this way. But need I remind you who was in power when they're writing these words? Because most likely it was either Emperor Claudius or even Emperor Nero, based on the dating that you might take for the writing of 1 Peter. And some believe, if it was Nero, some, some believe that Nero, the emperor of Rome, set fire to Rome, blamed the Christians, and as punishment began persecuting and killing the Christians. He used it as an excuse to persecute the church. The Roman historian Tacitus writes, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, meaning the Christians, covered with the skin of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. He would sow wild animal skins onto Christians and then send wild dogs after them to be eaten alive. He'd roll some of them in tar and oil and set them ablaze so they could be street lamps at night. This is the emperor that Peter says they should be subject to. And at that time, the Roman emperor was seen as a god and was worshipped, and there'd be social pressure for Christians to, to, to participate in worship of this Roman emperor. In order for them to be part of that society and culture and to work their way up in society, they would need to participate or feel the pressure to participate in this emperor worship. So Peter's not encouraging worship of the emperor, but just simply obeying the laws of the land and submitting ourselves to the institutions in that way. Now, sometimes I know it's hard for us to know how to relate their world to our world because they lived under a different form of government than we live under today. They had an emperor. 
It was totalitarian. It was dictatorship. And they couldn't really change that. Ours is different. So if we don't like something, we can at least disagree, we can debate, we can vote for something different, and that can and should be done in an honorable way, and Christians should lead the way on that. But I think where we struggle, whenever the people that we like are in power, sometimes it can border on worship. We do sometimes willingly the thing that was mandated in the Roman Empire, which was worship the emperor. And if the people that we, like, that, we, that we don't like are in power, we act like somehow God is off his throne. I love these words by J.C. Riles. It's a good reminder for us. He says, the best of men are only men at their very best. So too the worst of men are still only men at their very worst. No matter what happens, no matter who's in power, the earth is not going to be thrown off its axis. And I know that that might sound like I'm saying, you know, who cares who's in charge? Who cares about politics? And God? I'm, not, I'm not saying that this morning. I don't mean for this to imply that we shouldn't care or be engaged. We absolutely should. But ultimately speaking, we know that these are just people. They're not going to override what God's going to do. Now, Peter says they're to be subject to the emperor. And in verse 14, he mentions this role of governors who are sent to, he says they're sent to punish evil and to praise those who do good. So governors would be those people that are in charge of a province like Pontius Pilate or Governor Felix over in Acts chapter 3. So this is now civil and local government. And their role, if they function how God intends, they're to punish evil and they're to reward good. Now, you and I, we like it when they enforce laws so long as someone else gets in trouble and not us. A couple years ago, my family, we were going to Georgia uh, to go to my niece's wedding. And we've made this trip numerous times from here to, we've driven that, that, that trip a few times. And we always stop in Jackson, Mississippi as the halfway point getting to Atlanta. And we were going to stay there at a hotel in Jackson. We'd never stayed at this one hotel before. We are going to stay in a couple years ago. And so we get to the hotel in the evening. We get our stuff unloaded. We go to the room. We unpack. We go out to dinner. We come back. We go back to the hotel room. And we get caught up in some show. I think it was Shark Tank that night for a couple of hours with the kids. And then about 10 o'clock... Um, I've got to take the dog outside to go have her go do her business out in the field by the hotel. And as I leave the hotel, I get down the, the elevator with the dog, and I go to the hotel lobby, and I come outside, and I see about 15 police cars in the parking lot of this hotel. And I'm just wondering, like, what just took place at our hotel? And everything seems calm, considering the circumstances. And I'm having to walk around crime tape just to get to the field to go take my dog to have her go to the bathroom. And there's people just kind of watching and observing outside, and nothing really crazy is happening at this point. And I asked a guy off to the side, I said, hey, so what happened out here? And he said, man, it was crazy. There was a guy out here in the parking lot tonight. He had a gun, and he's kind of waving around at some people, and he's looking in people's windows in their cars. And so the, the police get called. They come and arrest that guy. And while they're arresting that guy, on the back side of the hotel, a unrelated incident, this gunfight breaks out between these two other guys outside, 
And so they go and arrest those two guys. And listen, no one, fortunately, nobody here was killed. They were all okay. But this horrific situation breaks out. And the, the police are there, and, and two things happen at our hotel, right? And at this point, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, I've got to go check the rental car for gun holes, which is a first. And, and so I go check that, and it's okay. I walk back upstairs with the dog, and I said to my family, I said, you guys aren't going to believe what happened at our hotel tonight. Because we saw and heard nothing in our room. And so I tell them the story. We go downstairs. The, the kids, of course, want to see all the commotion. So we go downstairs so they can see all the cars and stuff outside. And we see all that. We go back to, up to the room. And my wife says the most perfect line as we're walking into the room. She says, but this hotel had good reviews. <laughs> and I just said, you know, I'm going to leave a review. I'm going to give it five stars. And I'm going to say... This was the quietest hotel I have ever been in. You couldn't even hear the gunfire out in the parking lot. (laughs) And what's funny is the next morning we're about to leave the hotel and this news crew shows up as I'm driving away and they want to talk about the incident last night. So they just put a microphone in my face. They say, what do you think of what happened last night? And I gave them my unfiltered thoughts about that. And then they said, do you think you'll ever stay here again? I said, Jackson, yes, this hotel, probably not. And so we, we go on our way, and I just remember that night thinking, and I just had this great appreciation for those that are in law enforcement, thinking about how we're in our room watching a show, and we don't hear or see anything. We're clueless about what's happening outside, and they're outside putting their lives on the line in a situation like this. So I had this great appreciation that night for those that enforce the laws in this way. And then about a week later, we're driving back from Atlanta, Georgia now, and we're going through, um, we decided to go a back, ro- a back way to, uh, through, I think, Mississippi. And we're on this back road, and this road is just two lanes, and you get stuck behind those semi-trucks, and I, I've been stuck behind one for like 40 miles, and I'm just losing my patience. I'm getting so impatient, and I'm trying to pass this guy, and I can't get around him. And so we're coming into this little small town, and the guy slows down, And I finally say, you know what? I'm going around this guy. And it's a double yellow line, and I don't care at this point. And so I go around the guy, and as soon as I go around him, there's a police car sitting right there. And he gets me. And he pulls me over. And in moments like this as a dad, they're really embarrassing because your kids are in the back seat. And they're looking at you like, oh, dad got in trouble, like big trouble. And so we pull over, and he's going to get me for the double yellow line cross. But also, he said, I was doing 52 in a 35, which is 17 over. That ticket was approximately $600. I didn't appreciate the police as much on that day. So, but justice cuts both ways. Now, of course, we like it whenever someone else is getting in trouble, but not, of course, whenever the law is applied to us. But these civil authorities are, are placed there, these institutions are placed there, in a sense, by God to make sure that, that society can flourish and that reward is given to good and, 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 and evil, of course, is punished. That's why they exist. Now, do I think that 
the speeding and passing laws in general should be changed. Of course not. I just think they shouldn't apply to me in this one instance. But these governing authorities, if they function in the way that God intends, they're to punish evil and reward good. And, and listen, these laws, they have a good effect because I didn't speed much after that, at least for a week or so. Now, now sometimes governments uh, don't reward good and punish evil. And when they don't, I think it's good and right for believers to help bring about the change that would reflect God's desires. There's much biblical support for believers serving in government and using their influence. We see it with Daniel. We see it with Joseph influencing Pharaoh. We see it with Moses influencing Pharaoh. The prophet Jeremiah, he writes these words to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For those who serve in police departments or local government or state level or even national level, I just want to say after looking at this passage this week and meditating upon it for many, many hours this week, we appreciate you and we thank God for you. I think many of you don't get appreciated for the ways that you serve here locally or even at the state level possibly. And listen, we know that people are flawed, governments are flawed, but the question is, do we appreciate and encourage those that are seeking the welfare of our city in a godly way? Do we pray for them, believers and unbelievers? Do we feel burdened to pray for them in the ways that they serve? If you look into the next section here, you know, Peter's going to focus on government, but his words, every human institution, I think apply to all kinds of relationships. So this is the boss-employee relationship, coaches, players, teachers, students, parents, children. God has placed these authorities over us, and at times, what's crazy, at times even unbelievers are going to be over you for us to submit to. And the question is, why do we submit? Well, when we live in this way, Peter says we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We have our own man-centered ways of doing that, trying to silence foolish people. But he says when we live obedient lives in front of unbelievers, it has a way of keeping people quiet, or at least quieter. Listen, people are always looking for excuses to ridicule the Christian faith. Let's not give them extra excuses. So if we're always living in rebellion against the authorities, how does that affect our witness when we invite people to surrender to Christ? If we're trying to share our faith with someone, a boss, a teacher, a coach, or a colleague, and we're saying following Christ means that you submit our lives in faith to Jesus Christ, wouldn't it be great if they saw that model of submission in our own lives? Whether it be to God, or even those that God's placed over us? Now in the next verse... Peter's words sound like a contradiction. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And it's possible to show honor and respect to the people that we disagree with. It's possible to do that. So here's the paradox of the Christian faith. Freedom is found in submission. That's true of our relationship with God. 
It's also true in our relationship with the governing authorities. We pride ourselves on being people, these people of freedom, but how do we find true freedom? We find it by surrendering to Jesus, submitting our lives to Jesus. So when Peter says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for, for sin, it sounds like the words of Paul over in Galatians 5, where Paul says, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. I think you and I, we misunderstand what true freedom really is and how it's defined. Chase told me this week that a friend of his used to say this statement, there's a freedom that leads to bondage and a bondage that leads to freedom. If our freedom leads us into sin, it's just evil masquerading as freedom. It's just evil pretending to be freedom. It's just evil posing as freedom. But in verse 16, we see this interesting concept where he says following Christ means that we get to be free servants. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? We get to be free servants, humbly submitted to Jesus Christ, surrendered to him, but now we're, we're freed up to serve, to serve God, to serve others around us. The world's going to invite you to something different. The world's going to invite you to be an enslaved, free person. It's going to look like freedom. It's going to sound like freedom. But really, it's enslavement. It's really just bondage. Now, if you think government is a touchy subject, I've got to prepare you for what's next. The next few verses are about slavery. Now, just so we understand our term, slavery in the Roman Empire is a little bit different than how we might think of it in our context. Now listen, both scenarios are unjust, absolutely. But I'm simply trying to help you understand the meaning of the words that Peter is using here. Because whenever we see the word servant or bond servant in the text, we're, our minds go to what happened here in the US, which was horrific and also over in Europe, where people were kidnapped, bought, and sold as personal property. There have been some that have even used the Bible to justify those kind of institutions. But whenever you look at all of Scripture, God forbid that kind of thing in the nation of Israel. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. There is no question that some have used passages like the one in 1 Peter to justify things like slavery in our context, but I think they're wrong to do so. And it doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. In addition, it would, be like, it would be Christians like William Wilberforce and many others in the early 1800s who helped put an end to the slave trade over in Europe. So the word servant in the Roman Empire was a little bit different. Now, there was still great injustice, as we'll see in a moment, but it was not a system necessarily based on race, and it wasn't always a lifelong arrangement. Some were allowed to work and to buy their freedom. Some were even managers, overseers, doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, artists. I've read that there could be anywhere from 25 to 50% of the population of the Roman Empire that at some, at some point in their life lived under this servant status. So remember, Peter is writing to those that are suffering for their faith. 
He's not writing to those that are in power. And he's not writing to people who can do much to change their circumstances. If you and I were in a similar circumstance to what Peter describes here, we can usually do something about it. We've got means to do that, and we should. This does not mean that we should stay in an abusive work relationship. That's not how we apply this text. But this text does help us answer the question, how should we live as resident aliens when suffering unjustly? Look at verse 18. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, Peter is not condoning the mistreatment of a servant or an employee, but he is simply writing to those who might be on the receiving end of such treatment. The word unjust here literally means crooked, <coughs> crooked or bent. This might be someone who exploits or takes advantage of people, those working for them. Of course, today it's different because most of us, we could, we could at least theoretically quit, find another job. That wasn't always possible back then. When you look at verse 19, when a believer suffers for doing what's right, what does he call it? He says, it's a gracious thing. What does that mean? Well, you might say it like this. When we suffer patiently, God's grace is on display. When we suffer patiently, God's grace is put on display. We give them what they don't deserve because God gives us what we don't deserve. So if we're examining what it means to be a resident alien in front of a watching world, as someone who lives with the gospel at the center of one's life, how strange would it look for someone to suffer graciously when they're doing what's right? When I was in high school, I'm from uh, Virginia. When I was in high school, I was working at this golf club. And, and I started this job. And the guy that was the head pro, who was my boss at that job, was just not a real nice guy. He wasn't a believer. And he knew that I was, that my best friend was. And, and he just would be sarcastic and cutting and, and, and make fun of us, ridicule us for the, in front of other people. And it, it got old really quick. And if we ever had a question about changing a schedule or even getting a raise, possibly, he would just kind of laugh or mock or just laugh us out of the room, typically. And it was very frustrating. And my good friend, who was much more gracious than I was, just began to have conversations with him and say things like, hey, how can I pray for you? And you saw the man begin to soften a bit, to my friend at least, over time, as they began having those conversations. And I was so thankful to have someone along with me like that to set the example of how you should live graciously and be a display of grace when you're suffering unjustly. And if you look down at, at verse 20, when Peter writes, if a bondservant does something that's wrong, of course, they might get physically punished in the system that was existing back then if they had a harsh master. 
And so in our context, if we do something wrong as an employee, of course we're going to have some consequences. It may not be that, but we're going to have some consequences. So if we suffer for doing what's wrong, we can't really complain about that. If we show up every day late to work, if we don't meet deadlines, if we take money out of the cash register, we're probably going to get in trouble for that. We can't really claim, you know, I'm being persecuted at work for my faith if we're just a bad employee. We can't really claim that. But Peter is addressing a category that most of us can't really comprehend, and it's suffering for doing what's right. Most of us, including me, we don't even think we should suffer when we've done something wrong, like getting pulled over for a speeding ticket. But Peter's addressing something here that most of us have no category for, and it's suffering for doing something that's right. This is when you, you work hard, you're diligent, you're always on time, you're professional, but your boss is, is cutting and sarcastic and discriminates and never gives you credit, doesn't promote you because of your faith. And this is suffering unjustly. And Peter calls this, he says, it's a gracious thing. Now, why can he say that? We'll look at verse 21. It says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In verse 21, Peter says that we are, we are called to unjust suffering and that we can look to Christ as our example so that we might follow in his steps. A few months ago, a bunch of us went to Israel from this church uh, to go see the Holy Land. And if you asked anyone why they went, they would say, well, I want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. But do we, though? I mean, following in his steps will involve suffering unjustly. And the word example that Peter uses here is referring to the, the letters that the children trace when they're learning how to write, those letters, those dotted lines. So where Jesus walked, we walk. And his steps are going to take us through some unjust suffering if we're following after him. I think that might be why there are, that many of us are so casual in our faith. We think that Christianity and comfort go hand in hand. I think we have our own prosperity gospels, our own version of the prosperity gospel. We believe if, if I live a good life, a decent life, God's going to bless me. And we have this very narrow definition of what blessing looks like. So if we're going to live as resident aliens, it matters how we respond to unjust suffering. I think many times we are more concerned with our rights than with the gospel. I think God wants us more passionate for the gospel than for our rights. 
one of the guys on my team serving with the high school students, a friend of mine who works in the political world some. And I said, I want you to, he's someone trying to navigate, what does it look like to be obedient and live faithfully in a very, very difficult context? And I said, I want you to look at this passage that I'm teaching and just give me your thoughts on it. Here's what one of his statements that he said. He said, in American politics, we are unique in that God gives us the ability to impact who governs us which is a new level of responsibility entrusted to us. That being said, I believe it is far better to be hated or suffer for your beliefs than for your politics. I agree with that statement. I think my concern is that sometimes we are more bold and more evangelistic with our politics than with the gospel. And if we're going to suffer unjustly, let's... Let's make it be because of the gospel. Let's make that the stumbling block. I'm encouraged by the words of Juan Sanchez who writes, at moments of unjust suffering, we discover who we worship. So do we worship comfort or do we worship Christ? When you and I walk through unjust suffering, we're gonna have revealed in us, in our hearts, whether we worship comfort or truly worship Christ and want to walk the road that he walked. I want to remind you who is writing the book of 1 Peter. Of course, it's Peter. This is someone who would go between two extremes in his relationship with Jesus. One moment, remember the moment he's in the garden and there's an official there to arrest Jesus, to help arrest Jesus? And what does Peter do? He cuts off the guy's ear. Basically, he, he missed and he cuts off the guy's ear. And Jesus, of course, puts it back on miraculously. But he's trying to defend Jesus, and he gets violent with that. Then later on, he's standing around a fire, and he's denying he ever knew Jesus. He would go to these different extremes all the time with Jesus. But Peter, he witnessed something. He witnessed the Savior suffering unjustly, firsthand. He knew he stood next to Pilate at that perceived trial. And Pilate, who's not a believer, Jesus submits himself to the unjust treatment of those people. And it was through that submission is how Jesus bought our freedom. Later on, of course, Peter, he follows the example of Christ. And Peter is later, he's put to death. So the same emperor he's saying to be subject to is the same one that puts Peter to death later on. But for Peter, it's all worth it because he knows who the real king is. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for Peter's words to us, your words to us. God, we know these are difficult topics and these are difficult days. We've got to navigate so much in our world right now and in our culture. There is so much for us to navigate when it comes to the, the, the culture and the world out there, but also what's taking place in here. And we know around these topics, there have been, there's been so much just division and, and, and arguing and, 
and the church dividing over these kinds of topics, Father. We pray that you would bring us together under Christ. God, help us to live out with wisdom in our culture today what it means to be this resident alien, someone who lives here, but we're not from here. Someone who works in the way that you want us to here locally and even globally to bring about change that reflects you and your character, but at the same time knowing that you see it all, that you're sovereign, that you're in control. And God, help us to be people who treat others with honor and respect, people that we disagree with in hopes that they might come to know you. Help us to live that out, Father, in our world. We pray this in your name. Amen.